Our children are learning a catechism. Did you know that there's one for all of you as well? It's called the Westminster Shorter Catechism or the Westminster Larger Catechism. Uh, it is a wonderful resource to learn about the attributes of God. So you can be learning catechism questions and answers as well. Um, and the children this summer are memorizing scripture, and you can do that with them as well. We'll be sending that out to all of you in a weekly email, so I encourage you to memorize scripture with them this summer. Uh, now we're uh, continuing our sermon series that we began last week, looking at familiar passages of the Old Testament. These are the, the passages that, that we read about as children in our storybook Bibles. We want to take a deeper look at them, um, not just get spiritual milk. We want to get the, the rich meat that is in each of these passages tr to truly understand them and apply them to our lives. So we began with creation last week. This week, we now turn to chapter three, the fall. Now let's pray before we read God's word. A God of love and power, you reveal yourself to us through your word and accounts of prophecy and fulfillment that direct our attention to Jesus Christ. And by the power of your spirit, illumine us now as we hear your word proclaimed, that we may open our hearts to him, that we may yearn for his coming in glory, that we may desire to serve him with joy. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll be looking this morning at Genesis 3, the chapter in its entirety. I want to encourage you to open your pew Bibles or the Bibles you brought with you from home and read along. Keep those Bibles open as we go through this text this morning. But now, hear the word of God. It is written. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to me, gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. 
And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and eat, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Last Sunday, we saw creation as God intended in the Garden of Eden. Beautiful, orderly, harmonious. The man and his wife served God as his representatives, exercising together dominion over creation We saw how they were lacking nothing. They were provided for in abundance in the garden where they lived in perfect communion with one another and with God and with all of creation. Everything was good, very good. Everything was as it was designed to be. But immediately in chapter 3, we are introduced to a new creature, The serpent, which has slithered into the scene somewhat suddenly and unsuspectingly, and immediately we get the sense that this creature's presence is ominous. This creature is described in verse 1 as more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God made craftiness at this point in the narrative is somewhat ambiguous. The word doesn't always carry a negative connotation. It could be seen as a virtue that the wise should cultivate as it is in Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 16, or it could be seen as a vice such as in Job chapter 5 and verse 12, where the crafty are those who plot against God. But the explicit characterization of actors in a Hebrew narrative is very rare, which indicates to us that something unusual is happening here. It alerts us that we should pay attention to this creature, to the creature's words, and we should weigh them carefully. And of course, we who are familiar with this story 
don't really need to be told that. We know who the serpent is. He is the one who is called by Jesus in John 8, the father of lies in whom no truth exists. He is the one who is declared in Revelation 12, 9 to be that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. We know that this is the evil one who had come to deceive the image bearers of God, to lead them astray in rebellion against God. This was his murderous plan. And that from the fall into sin here in Genesis 3, all the world became cursed and corrupted by sin, was plunged into death and decay. And whether we are a believer or not, we recognize that there is something wrong with the world. The effects of the fall are all around us and within us, and this passage reveals how we got here. But if we want to know something of the tactics and the tricks of the evil one in order that we can recognize and resist them, then we should know more than just the general gist of the story. If we want to understand the sinfulness of sin and its consequences in order that we can learn to hate sin and put it to death in our lives, then we need to push deeper into this text. And if we also want to see that God has not abandoned his creation and specifically the crown of his creation, then we need to pay careful attention to this passage. It not only has implications for the rest of Scripture, but it has implications for our lives today and how we navigate this fallen world. So it's important that we spend a little time here this morning. And to help us get through this very important text in a methodical way, I want to divide it up into three sections. I'm going to call these the deception, the downfall, and the devastation. The deception, the downfall, and the devastation. Uh, So let's first look at the deception, verses 1 through 6. Present us with the temptation of Eve, and we should notice something immediately. Look at the first thing the serpent says to the woman. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The very first thing that Satan does is question God's word. But it's done in a way that's very unassuming, isn't it? It seems like an innocent question about what God has commanded concerning the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve doesn't appear to feel threatened by this question at all. Don't be fooled, though. Something very sinister is playing out here, and, and we are seeing the craftiness of the evil one. Can you recognize it? observe the wording he uses. Did God actually say, did he really say you shall not eat of any tree? What is he doing here? He is intentionally misrepresenting what God said. What had God really said? What was his command concerning eating of the trees in the garden? This is what God said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God had 
told Adam and Eve that they could eat of any tree, of all the trees except one. God's command was rooted in God's good provision. There was a nuance of liberality which allowed Adam and Eve to freely enjoy any of the trees, all of the trees, except one. But what has Satan asked? Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The very question itself is meant to undermine God's word. As biblical scholar Kent Hughes points out, he, didn't, he did not directly deny God's word, but he introduced the assumption that God's word is subject to our judgment. That God's word is subject to our judgment. Think about that. Think about the arrogance involved in believing that God's word is subject to our judgment at all. Think about standing over God's word and declaring, I don't really see a good reason why God would command that, so I will disregard it. I don't really think that command is pleasing to me, so I will just disregard it because I know better than God. Dearly beloved, this is the essence of pride and this is exactly the goal of the serpent's enticement of Eve. But the serpent's question does not only begin to bring into question God's word, there is a very subtle twisting of God's word designed to change the emphasis from God's good provision to one of absolute prohibition. Did you notice that? It's very crafty. What's the aim of this? He wants Eve to begin to question God's motivation for this command. He wants to plant within Eve the thought that perhaps God is stingy and oppressive, withholding from them good things, important things, pleasing things. He's going to come back to this momentarily. But first, listen to how Eve responds. She replies, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Pay attention. So far, so good. Well, sort of. Did you notice she left off that they could surely eat of every tree? Again, it points to God's generosity in providing much. But she has at least sought to correct the serpent. She continues. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So what about the back half of her statement? She's made several mistakes, hasn't she? And they might seem small, but they have a huge cumulative effect. She has replaced the significance of the tree, that it is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, with its location in the midst of the garden. She's added an additional prohibition about touching the tree. She's left off the urgency of the punishment for breaking the command, you will surely die. So Eve has fallen right into this trap the serpent set because she herself has begun to misrepresent God's word. The Proverbs tell us not to answer a fool according to his folly, lest we be like him ourselves. Well, Eve has now engaged the serpent on his own terms. Now we need to know here the creature, the, the serpent is a creature himself. He's not equal in power to God, but he is 
more clever than we are. He is more powerful than we are. Do not underestimate him. We will never win when we engage the evil one on his own terms. And what Eve has said here reveals that her heart has become infected already with the serpent's poison. She has forgotten who God is and what he has provided. She is now focused on what has been denied her. God's generosity and goodness has been minimized. His strictness has been magnified. Those of you who are around or have been around children enough have seen this scenario play out before, haven't you? A single restriction can be magnified very quickly. Mom, can I have some candy? No, honey, we're about to eat dinner. You never let me have candy. You see how that works? Mom, who is lovingly caring for her child, trying to prevent future misery, in an instance becomes a ruthless tyrant. And many under Satan's leading have become convinced that God is a ruthless tyrant. As soon as we see God as unjust and unloving, no longer do we have to be responsible to him or so we believe. So now the serpent moves in for the kill. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent moves from misrepresenting God's word to outright denial. And what is the first doctrine denied by Satan. It is the doctrine of God's judgment. You can ignore God's commands with no consequence. But that's not all. It's, it isn't just a denial of judgment. It is coupled with an insistence that God is withholding good. And we can see the tr- serpent's true intent more clearly now. He has questioned God's word. He has undermined it, asserting that it is subject to our judgment. He has planted the thought that God is not as a father who cares deeply for his children, providing for them in abundance, protecting them, but rather God is a lying, malicious deity who is withholding good things and limiting human potential. The serpent has encouraged doubt of God's judgment and love while also denying his judgment. He is leading the woman away from God into rebellion and death. And with these things, the deal of deception has been sealed. By seeming to remove the threat of judgment and promising that Eve would become like God, Satan has, in only a few moves, enticed Eve to eat checkmate. The fruit becomes her single desire. And as James says, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Once Eve had been deceived concerning God and the fruit and developed sinful desires, we see everything playing out in rapid succession. Verse six, the woman saw and desired, she took, she ate, she gave it to her husband for him to eat as well. An unquenchable desire for the fruit had grown within her. She saw that it was good, which perhaps points to it both being physically beautiful 
and seen as morally good, making the woman wise, giving her divine knowledge. This is how sin is often presented, isn't it? A moral good. Isn't it shown as something good and beautiful, not as something harmful? Isn't it shown to be something that brings happiness and promotes life, something that helps us to reach our potential? So not only did it look appealing, but Eve wanted the knowledge that the fruit now promised her. It was knowledge apart from God. As John Calvin noted, Eve became intoxicated with the ambition to rise above the position in which God had placed her. God's goodness and provision was no longer enough. She wanted more. She wanted the one thing that God had forbidden because she no longer trusted that God actually intended good for her in denying her that one thing. Beloved, we need to see that Satan's tricks and tactics have not changed one bit since the beginning. He wants nothing more than our understanding of God's word to be as distorted as possible. Did God really say Did God really say that you are to devote one day out of the seven to him? Did God really say that marriage is only between one man and one woman and that sexual intimacy is limited to the context of marriage? Did God really say that wives are to submit themselves to their husband's spiritual leadership? Did God really say that sin will lead to death? Did God really say that there would be eternal punishment for those who sin against him? Did God really say? The commandments begin to look like suggestions that can be ignored. Satan wants to convince us that we can stand in judgment over God and his word and that we can freely ignore God's word with no consequence. He wants to persuade us that God is not for us, but is against us. He wants us to believe that God is a ruthless tyrant. He wants to entice us into believing that we can be our own gods, that freedom and life exist outside of God. Brothers and sisters, we see this playing out in a million different ways all around us and within us. And we see the misery it brings. And since God has created us to be in community, even this gets twisted up. We, like Eve, want others to join us in our sin because we enjoy company and it helps us to justify it, right? The fruit appears good. We taste of it of its sweetness. We want to share it with others because surely a majority can't be wrong. All of this before we fully recognize its poison, that it will never be able to provide us what it promised, and that rebellion against God has terrible consequences. But before we move along to those consequences, notice the subtleness of Satan's approach. He and his minions don't typically come stomping in like a big, ugly, three-headed monster spitting fire. Rather, as the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Evil doesn't come as a scary spook. It comes as something enticing. And this is the danger of evil. It is very, very 
deceptive because it is very subtle. It comes looking beautiful and pleasing. It comes appealing to our created wants and desires, and it subtly twists them. It takes good things and distorts them. It takes our desire for intimacy, for instance, and it replaces it with lust. It takes our need for food and replaces it with gluttony. Every good thing can become our God. As Cornelius Plantinga Jr. rightly observes, Satan must appeal to our God-given appetite for goodness in order to win his way. To prevail, evil must leech not only power and intelligence from goodness, but also its credibility. Hence, its treacherousness. Be warned, dearly beloved, and be on guard. Next, we see where the deception leads us. So next, we see the immediate result of sin. We see the downfall. Verses 6 through 13. This is the fall of man and woman into sin. Did you notice how the sin itself is stated so simply and unsensationally? Right? Eve took the fruit and ate. And seeing that his wife had not dropped over dead, Adam took it and ate it too. He had been there all along. If we were reading the Southern Standard Version of the Bible, we would have noticed that when the serpent spoke, he was using y'all, not you. He wasn't speaking to just Eve. He was speaking to the both of them. But the Apostle Paul notes that although Eve was deceived, Adam wasn't implying that Adam ate willingly, eyes wide open. Eve was deceived. Adam ate willingly. All of it seems so inconsequential, though. This is how sin often plays out initially, right? It seems so simple. No big deal. I committed the sin. Nothing happened. It might have even had a pleasing result. But in all reality, the consequence was enormous. It was cosmic and it was eternal. The Apostle Paul would later say that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. He took it night. And death came into the world and spread to all men. But here Eve saw and took and ate, gave it to Adam, and he ate. And in sinning, they did not die physically, at least not immediately. But we do notice that something has changed. There is evidence that all is not right. What happens when they eat of the fruit? Their eyes are indeed opened. But they find themselves naked in a shame. Sin never delivers what it promises. It promises pleasure. It leaves us in pain. It promises community. It leaves us in isolation. It promises enlightenment. It leaves us in confusion. It promises freedom. It leaves us in chains. It promises life. And it produces only death. But God is always faithful to his word, and God did promise death, and death is immediately present for Adam and Eve. You see, death 
does not mean a reversal of existence. They still exist. They were still physically alive, but there had been a reversal of life. Death is to be cut off from the land of the living, and this is exactly what begins to immediately unfold in more ways than they could have ever imagined. Instead of giving Adam and Eve divine knowledge, their sin produced pain and brokenness. They experienced guilt, internal pain, pointing to spiritual disease. We are told that they created loincloths to hide their nakedness from each other, an indication to us that there was brokenness now in their relationship with one another. There was also brokenness in their relationship with God. They fled from God. Where man and woman had once desired to be in God's presence, now they were trying to escape from God's presence. Where his presence once produced joy in them, now it produced dread. After all, it is terrifying to be in the presence of a holy God. God exudes selfless, self-giving perfect love. Adam and Eve had turned in on themselves. It's hard to be in the presence of a perfect, holy love when you are dead in your sin and selfishness. So they tried to hide from him. And this is what sin and unbelief does. It produces the delusion that we can be where God is not. And we see a lot of that going around us, don't we? We see people trying to escape God, denying his existence, his authority over them, replacing God with a God of their own making who is agreeable to their sin. We see people trying to shed guilt and shame. More and more people are becoming shameless, acting in sinful ways out in the open, believing that they can eliminate guilt and shame by removing the stigma of sin. And it might just work as they sear their own consciences and God gives them over to their sin. This is judgment against them. But notice what happened when God came looking for Adam and Eve and called them to account. Adam blames God for giving him the woman. God, this is your fault. You put this dangerous creature at my side. So much for marital bliss, right? And God addresses Eve, and Eve responds, it's the serpent's fault. He deceived me. Apparently, no one is responsible for his or her own sin. Unfortunately, this still seems to be the case for many. We blame God. We blame God for putting us in the situation. We blame God for creating us with these passions and appetites. We heard this said all the time, right? Well, God made me that way. Really? Or we blame others. It's my parents' fault. It's my teacher's fault. It's my boss's fault. We had a bad upbringing, a bad education. We got robbed of the right promotions and opportunities. The first chapter of James makes it very clear that we are responsible for our own sin. We are enticed by our own desires. It is no one's fault but our own, but we still try to play the victim. It is evidence of the depravity and death that now infects us to the core. But this passage doesn't just end with fingers being pointed at one another. There is actually a verdict given, and the guilty parties 
punished. God renders judgment. We've seen the deception. We have seen the downfall. So finally, we see the devastation that sin causes. And we need to have clarity about this. As much as the world wants to deny God's judgment and live as though there will be no judgment, God is always faithful to his word. He had given Adam a command with a warning, and Adam quickly discovered that God upholds his word. God's commandment had been transgressed, and God in his perfect holiness and righteousness would not and could not sit idly by and allow this offense. So we see in verses 14 through 19, God handing down judgments to the serpent, to Eve, and to Adam, the deceiver, the deceived, and the one who has sinned willingly. And there's a lot we could say here. I just want to briefly point out just a few things. We should notice that the judgment is specific to the nature of the offense that each has committed. As one commentator notes, God does not render judgment arbitrarily or capriciously. In other words, God's judgment here is not random. It's not impulsive. It's not rash. It's not without rhyme and reason. We should also notice that the judgment isn't meaning to imply that the state of being has somehow changed for the servant even Adam, but that the nature of their condition has changed. Let me say what that means. The serpent continues to slither on the ground as he had before. But because Satan, whom the serpent represents, had tried to exalt himself above God and man, he would be forced to eat the dust, which is another way of saying that he would be humbled. Satan would ultimately be put in his place by both God and man. Eve would continue to bear children just as she had before, and she would live in submission to her husband as she had before. But Eve would now experience anxiety, discomfort, pain in pregnancy and childbirth, and her desire would be to control her husband and their relationship, which would cause strain and discord in marriage. Adam would continue to work the ground, but the ground would be cursed because of his disobedience. No longer Did it have God's protection and blessing? It would become wild and stubborn work, which Adam once found to be joyful and productive would now be difficult and frustrating and at times unproductive. The state of these things had not changed, but the nature of their condition had changed. Sin and death touched all aspects of life. It corrupted God's good design. And last but not least, God gave Adam a death sentence. Not that this didn't also apply to Eve, but it was given to Adam specifically because he was responsible as the federal head for the fall. He had not only failed to protect his wife, but had eaten of the fruit with her, and so all of humanity would be brought into sin with him. And as a result, he who had been taken from the dust would now to dust return. It's the penalty of physical death. Notice it is a reversal of the creation process, a reversal of Adam's God-given state, which is why death for us, even though it is inevitable for us all, still seems so unnatural. It's because it is unnatural. 
But death was ensured not only by God's judgment against Adam, but also in Adam and Eve being banished from the garden and from the tree of life. No longer would they be able to eat of its fruit and live. Their sin had broken relationship with God. Therefore, they could not remain in the garden. They would be forced into exile outside of the garden with all of its hardships. But before leaving the garden, verse 21 tells us that God killed an animal and clothed Adam and Eve And for those of you who, like me, have taken the life of an animal, perhaps this verse does not immediately bear much weight, so let me try to reframe it. Adam had recognized how unprecedented it was to take life, to shed blood, so he had tried to clothe himself with fig leaves. But sin cannot be covered with leaves, only with pain and blood and life. From the first sin to the last, the track of the sinner is marked with blood. It was made apparent that sin was a real and deep evil and that there was no easy and cheap process that could restore the sinner. And so God took the initiative. He provided what only he could provide, an adequate covering, which recognized both their sin and was an act of grace pointing forward to a better atonement, a more sufficient sacrifice, which would cover all their sin. So brothers and sisters, before we conclude, we need to see that God does not intend to leave his creation groaning under the weight of sin. God does not abandon his creation to sin and death. God even here reveals that his intention is to redeem in his love, in his grace. So as much as we need to see the seriousness and curse of sin, as much as we need to see the consequence and penalty for sin, these things should cause us to flee from Satan, put sin to death in our lives. We need to understand that there is hope of redemption. Even in the judgment, the gospel is proclaimed. We are told of God's plan to rescue his people. Through woman, the human race would be continued through childbirth, but it would also be through woman that would come victory over sin and death. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This isn't offspring plural, by the way. It is singular. It is masculine. He will crush your head. And as we move through the scripture narrative, this promise becomes fuller and clearer. For instance, in Numbers 21, where we find a curious story, God's people, Israel, were dying from the bites of venomous snakes, which had been sent to them due to their sin. And the Lord tells Moses to make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. Dearly beloved, here are the words of one who would century later be born of a woman, born in the line of those who had received the promise. He said, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And you'll know the next verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Dearly beloved, do you understand that there is only one cure to sin? 
And it is Jesus Christ who knew himself to be the antidote for the serpent's venom. Do you get that just as Moses lifted up an image of the serpent, the symbol of sin, that Jesus Christ too would be lifted up, that he would bear our sins in his body on the tree, that he would be made to be sin for us. The one who knew no sin became sin for you and me. He redeemed us from the curse by becoming himself the curse and his all-sufficient sacrifice provided in atonement for our sin gave to us by grace a covering of righteousness. The cross became the tree of life for all those who place faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was struck by Satan. He received the fullness of the venom on the cross, but through his death and resurrection, he swallowed up sin and death and arose to crush Satan's head. Through death came one man and through one man came eternal life. It is in Jesus Christ that we have life. This is the gospel. It is the good news. We aren't abandoned to sin and death. God will restore his creation one day in its fullness, but even now he is at work redeeming all of creation through the blood of his only son. Do you believe it? Do you know him? Have you received him? Dearly beloved, place faith in Jesus Christ. Come out from under the curse of sin and death and live. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we have all sinned and fall short of your glory. Lord, that in Adam sin came to all men, And Lord, we were children of our father, the father of lies. But only by your grace, you have delivered us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into your marvelous life. You have brought us from death to life. Lord, help us to acknowledge that. Help us to continue to turn from our sin to recognize that the spirit and the flesh are in opposition. And we know that in the spirit, there is freedom in life. So help us to turn to you, to run to you, to find life. Help us to point others to you, to find life. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe. Using the Scots Confession. Christian, in whom do you believe? We confess.